Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tectonic. My name is Mark Hurst. I'll be your host for the next hour here on WFMU, Freeform Station of the Nation, live from Jersey City in that great state of New Jersey. I'm happy you're with me. Got a great interview, a very pertinent and important interview for you this evening with Brian Merchant, who has written a book called Blood in the Machine, The Origins of the Rebellion Against Big Tech. And this is a book, you will hear all about it in this interview. It is about the Luddites, the early 1800s textile workers in England who went into the factories and destroyed a number of uh, automated looms and other kinds of textile machinery that were new at the time. We're going to get into that in the, uh, in the inter- interview here in a few minutes. First, I want to say thanks to everybody who came out for the record fair this past weekend in Queens. WFMU hosted our first record fair since 2019, and it was a big success. So thanks to everybody who came out to Queens. I hope we'll do it again next year, and I hope we'll see you again next year. And if you missed uh, coming out to Queens for the record fair to support the station, there's still a bunch of things going on uh, in and around the station for the month of October, which in which we're, we're celebrating our month-long fundraiser called the Hellraiser. Uh, and I'm going to say more about that later in the show. So this is, this is a month where we really appreciate your support of this great station. First, I want to play this interview with Brian Merchant. So again, uh, this, this book tells the story of the Luddites, but it does more than that. It shows the parallels, the similarities between the time of the Luddites, let's say between 1811 and 1813 in England, parallels between that time and our economy today, which is dominated by big tech. And you might be thinking, well, what do early 19th century textile workers with those machines of that day have to do with 2023 with the four or five big tech companies dominating this this digital economy we have with AI and uh, and and ChatGPT other generative AI systems and uh, platforms that we see from Uber and Lyft and Amazon not to mention all the social media platforms and the uh, the the search engine. Uh, from Google that is now under uh, investigation, well, actually in, in trial uh, from the Department of Justice for antitrust harms. All of those things seem worlds away from the complaints of the Luddites. And uh, Brian Merchant is going to walk us through it. The book is, is, is really well written, and it, it tells, again, it tells the story of the Luddites, and every few chapters, it steps away from the Luddites, and it says... Here is how this almost exactly matches what's going on today with our big tech-led economy. And again, the subtitle of the book is The Origins of the Rebellion Against Big Tech. And so Brian Merchant is suggesting that resistance to big tech that, that we see today, that this, this show certainly stands for, really started 
in early 1810s England, which is a, a striking f assertion to make, really, and, and he backs it up well. Uh, so I want to play this. Um, I want to play this interview for you. It's um, it's a little bit longer because I had so much great material to keep from this interview. It's a little longer than some of uh, the other interviews you've heard on the show. So we're just going to dive right in uh, with Brian Merchant. If you want to join in the live listener chat, you can go to wfmu.org, click playlist and comments, and you can join the chat. And uh, let's go ahead and listen to the beginning of this interview with Brian Merchant here on Tectonic on WFMU. Brian Merchant, welcome to Tectonic. Thanks so much for having me, Mark. Brian, you've written an important book. It's called Blood in the Machine, The Origins of the Rebellion Against Big Tech. And it gives the history of the Luddites while also showing how similar our big tech-dominated economy is to the economy of early 1800s England. Most of the book is set in England between 1811 and 1813, and um, maybe we could start there. What was changing at that time in, in the 1810s? What was changing in England's textile and clothing industry that was causing concern? Yeah, there was really two trends that were happening simultaneously, and it's no mystery as to why they were happening simultaneously. Uh, the, the first is that technology had been improved uh, at, at a number of points. It was still being improved constantly as part of what we know today as the Industrial Revolution, where you have the, the, the clothing trade, which was the biggest non-agricultural sector of of England's economy. It was it was what was really driving that industrial revolution. So it was fostering a lot of technological innovation. But while that's happening, you start to see some uh, new ideologies forming as well around the division of labor and um, laissez-faire and and sort of free market economics. And those two trends kind of collide when the factory owners and entrepreneurs of the day decide to start using that machinery to build the first factories and then sort of in stark opposition to the way that trade had been organized for hundreds of years. So we have the dominant industry or a dominant industry of clothing and textiles that's giving rise to all of these technological innovations. And this is an important framework for the listeners to understand that you're drawing parallels, as I said before, between what happened in those times of disruption and what has happened here in our economy in the last 10 years. Can you talk about some of those technological innovations? I mean, unfortunately, today, when people use the word technology, often they're referring to computerized digital tools, devices, and platforms. But you make a strong case that in the 1810s in England, the technology, although it looked very different, was just as disruptive and it had a lot of the same economic effects that the digital technologies have today. What were some of those technologies that were popping up back then? So, it, yeah, it was mostly um, automated machinery, what we would call autom the term automated or automation wasn't around back then. Um, it was mechanization or mechanized at the time. But machines like the shearing frame or the gigging mill that would basically automate the smoothing of cloth, there was a device called the wide frame that 
that reduced the amount of labor that was needed to produce a knit garment and in the process greatly reduced the quality of the garment too. We can talk about that in a little bit. And then sort of most famously probably was the power loom, which was automating the, um, the, the act of weaving itself, which was one of, if not the largest skilled jobs in all of England. And it is developed in the, the, the two preceding decades to, to when the bulk of the book is set, but it also stands to be the most disruptive. Basically, it allows, you know, one person, one overseer, one unskilled worker to operate this machine that again produces a garment that's nowhere near as good as a as a as a craftsman could, but it can mass produce them for cheaper and in greater quantities. So the the owner of the factory can make up the the, the margins by selling more. So it really becomes central to this question of what kind of a future you know these workers wanted. What kind of what kind of a future most of England and the working classes of England wanted when they see these machines sort of arriving in mass, organized sort of in a factory under one overseer, and then that's in stark contrast to sort of the old way where you're working at home or you're in a small shop and you have a lot of control over your day and you're deciding how you're going to use that technology. So it's just as much about what the te- what the technology al- allowed, um, the ways that it, it it enabled other people to use it, sort of against working people, that the complaints stemmed from. Not mu- not as much just like wow, this thing is really powerful. Right. Yeah, I really didn't know much about the textile and clothing industry of that time before I read your book. You go into some detail about the various professions. There were weavers and. There were several types of skilled artisans that, as you said, would work at home. Some of them, their father or their grandfather had done this. This is a multi-generational project, working at home, setting their own hours, and being proud of the high-quality work that they're turning out. Then come these machines like the power loom, and all of a sudden, everything changes. They can no longer work at home. they got to work in a factory, and the boss doesn't want to pay anything. And it seems to be just as much an indignity to these skilled laborers that they see the quality of the work going down. Yeah. One thing that's important to keep in mind and one thing that makes this such a striking historical example is that the economy is so different then. You know, if you're in a weaving town or a knitting town or a, a cotton producing town, it's not like there's a highly diversified array of jobs that you that you have at your disposal where you you know you're born and you say oh you know maybe you know i want to be a physicist or oh maybe i want to you know open a coffee shop you know the bulk of the trade is concentrated in these jobs and so you either decide to you know apprentice as a weaver or a cloth finisher and you put in the time and you you do the work you learn to do it well um and that was the assumption you know as you said for about 200 years these communities were were governed and organized that way. So when somebody who has a bunch of money comes on the outside of town and says, here's a factory, we can now build more product, we can make more garments, more blankets, more cloth, you name it, and we can we can undercut you on price. So you have no choice either to come work for us or to lower your prices. 
it doesn't look like, you know, a business move to these folks. It doesn't look like, you know, oh, that's smart business or they're really innovating over there. It looks like someone has come along and, as they say, stolen bread off their table because it really was that that clear to them and that the moral dimension was so obvious to them um, at the time. They hadn't, you know, been subjected to uh, decades and decades of, you know, tech, all technology is progress and really kind of believing that innovation is an inherent good. No, they saw as one great historian, David Noble has termed it, um, technology in the present tense. He argues that the Luddites were among the last to see it in the present tense and to sort of evaluate it accordingly as to how it was going to affect their communities and their lives. And that was the who the, the people who had become the Luddites. Their, their complaint was with the machinery that was hurtful to commonality, not progress, not the fact that the you know machinery was going to increase production, but that it was going to do so at their expense. And yeah, a big part of that is that since they had such pride in, in the kind of work that they did and in the output that they uh, were able to produce, when they saw those factories churning out cheap, they called cut-ups in, in Nottingham, like the late, they, 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 instead of making a whole garment skillfully, um, they would just kind of, you know, make two halves of a, of a stocking and then just kind of slam them together. And they'd fall apart after a couple of years, but they were a lot cheaper. The, the effect of that was twofold. On one hand, that was, uh, you know, a disgrace to their to their trade. It offended them, and it offended their uh, their sensibilities that such bad stuff was being turned out. But it also gave the whole region a reputation for producing this mass-produced stuff. And then, even if you're making the good stuff, you have to compete on price with with the garbage. So it also just served to sort of on the on the on the most basic economic level to drive down wages and and, and grievances that way. We'll we'll get to similarities later, but just I want to interject that anybody who works in journalism or any of the other many affected fields has got to be nodding their heads right now. A cut up of text mashed together by an AI engine and spat out onto a news website somewhere does not create journalism, even though the boss gets to barf that out for close to zero dollars. It's a real insult to the field of journalism to even post that on a website. And so we're, we're having the same conversation again, 200 and something years later. Yeah, exactly. You know, and to me, it's, it's, you know, the writers uh, who are part of the writer's strike that just recently resolved. Finally, that grievance completely rhymed with the grievance of the Luddites back in the day that they knew that the studios wanted to reserve the right to use AI to basically produce inferior goods that then they would have to come in and clean up and fix. And they just wanted an excuse to pay them less. Right. Well, that's pretty much what was going on then too. They, you know, they were, there was still a human in the equation, just as many humans because output is ramping up. But those humans are, you know, vulnerable people, quite literally children a lot of the time um, who you can pay a lot less. So the Luddites were pretty clear eyed about what was going on, just as the writers who, in fact, won their contract with some very strong protections against AI um, were very clear eyed about what was happening with AI, too. It's not they were it's not that they were afraid of the AI. It's just that they knew exactly how it was going to be used to sort of erode their uh, standard of living. But there's this enduring myth that the Luddites were somehow technophobic or they were against any machines, which is crazy. As you point out, 
they were using machines. These artisans were using machines. They weren't against the idea of using any machine. It was the particular machines that had the effects you described before, lowering the quality and dropping wages and using unskilled labor. The way I read your book, I'm, I'm imagining the life of a weaver or one of the artisans whose family has been in this business for 200 years, and all of a sudden, all of these changes happen. And as you say, there's not a lot of mobility to make a lateral career change mid-career to go become something else, nor did there seem to be a lot of or much of a social safety net. I mean, when the breadwinner got priced out of the market, there's no money, and that means there's no food. Their, their families, their kids were starving, literally starving in some cases. And so what did people expect starving people who previously had been employed and happy and, and making a life? What did they expect they would do when they saw their kids starving at the table but to start to yeah. organize some sort of a pushback? Um, well, as the as as the oral historian of of the Luddite movement, Frank Peel, uh, who was writing in the late 1800s, said they basically expected the, the cloth workers to lay down in a ditch and die. Like he said it tongue in cheek, but that was basically what the, the government and and the crown and sort of the elites, if you will, of the day, really. That's what the that's what it amounted to. They rejected time and again, and over a period of 10 years, over the same period in which a weaver's wages fell nearly by half from the beginning of the uh, 1800s to um, the time of the Luddite uprising the, uh, in 1811, the, the, the wages that, that weavers could, make, could earn fell, fell nearly by half. And you know that was combined with a number of other, uh, you know, there was a bad harvest um, and there were some other things at play. But the weavers, again, recognize the way that the new, quote unquote, I call them tech titans for sort of ease of comparison in the book, but the way that they were, again, deploying technology is much like, you know, Uber or Lyft did in the modern day, they came into an industry, they ignored all the regulations said, hey, this is something different. We don't have to do things like uh, do apprenticeships anymore, because we have this great technology. And the weavers correctly, the cloth workers correctly said, hey, that's against the law. We have regulations on the books for for anyone who wants to work in this trade. They have to train this many years. Cloth count has to fetch this price at the market. And again, that was just trammeled over. And, you know, sure enough, when they appealed to Parliament, it was, as I think Eric Hobsbawm, the, the great historian, put it, the most ferociously conservative parliament in UK history, because they had a handful of these guys who just were, you know, taking the brand new ideas that the laissez-faire advocates and Adam Smith were putting out there and just completely radically uh, implementing them. That meant no safeguards, no social safety net, no minimum wage. So when the weavers and the cloth workers came asking for all those things, time and again, they just said no. And they said, you're on your own, basically. We're not going to intervene in the workings of the free market. Even when it was clear that thousands and thousands of people were, as you said, literally starving. Eventually, in 1809, they just tear up all the regulations and say, we're done with it. It is just, it's, it's fair game out there. And they basically handed carte blanche to the industrialists to factorize. And that was one of the elements that sort of led up to the outbreak of the, the uprising in, in 1811. 
One last piece of context that I'd like to set before we get to the uprising. You mentioned before that these new factories were reliant on child labor. I had always imagined that it was because everybody was working and that included kids. But now I understand that what was happening is that the factories did not want to work with the trained adults who could have made clothes. They wanted to cut costs as much as possible. And much like the big tech companies today in training their AI engines, they want to use the most vulnerable, most easily exploitable labor pool that they can get to. And today that's third-party contractors in faraway countries. Back in 1811, 1812, England, that was kids and not just any kids. In a lot of cases, you said they went to orphanages and they would send a representative and say, hey, kids, do you want to get three square meals a day and education and lots of nice clothes? And they'd make all these false promises. They'd load them up on trains and then dump them off at the factory where the kids then entered hell, basically. I mean, they were worked to death. They were chewed up by the machines. They were harassed, even tortured by the overseers. There's this one little bit that you included in the book. I just, I underlined this because I think this expresses how bad it was. You write, at Lytton, which was one of the factories, so many children had died that the factory's management distributed the bodies to churches across the region so that the sheer volume would not arouse the suspicions of the ministers who buried them. That's really a chilling observation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have a seven-year-old son, and they had seven-year-olds running around these factories at the whims of those overseers and this incredibly dangerous machinery. And a lot of the times their job was to use their little hands to pull out pieces of cotton that might jam up the works um, and prevent it from running efficiently. And a lot of times if they weren't fast enough, they would, you know, get their fingers smashed or broken off or pulled into the machines. It was really a gross case of just how you know, it's not the machinery's fault. You don't blame the machinery. You can blame the whole system of uh, of the factory and of all these instances and, and dividing labor this way. And then people just being willing to dehumanize children this way. It's almost unthinkable today. And yet, you know, we, as you said in your preface uh, uh, to this question, you know, today we outsource a lot of the most abusive and difficult and grotesque work to folks who are either here or abroad in a lot of cases um, and are completely invisible to the end product or, you know, the tech companies would would like it to be doing things like, you know, they're not at risk of having their limbs torn off, um, fortunately, anymore, but they are watching hours of disturbing content to make sure none of it shows up in our feeds, or they're doing grueling, repetitive tasks to ensure that same day delivery can happen. And, you know, we've seen some of the the really exploitative and awful conditions in the Amazon warehouses alone, where people are passing out or dying of heat stroke, and, you know, no one approaches the body for 
for half an hour because it's everyone's so worried about, you know, messing up the productivity or, or you know, getting red flagged. So there are a lot of commonalities there to the systems and sort of at least the motivations of the systems and, and sort of what they enable and how they sort of do rely at all times on this invisible, precarious and vulnerable labor. And we're back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I'm your host. We are halfway through my interview with Brian Merchant. He's talking about his new book, Blood in the Machine, The Origins of the Rebellion Against Big Tech. This is a book that tells the story of the Luddites, English textile workers in the 1810s that entered factories and destroyed machines that they were opposed to, or machines that represented uh, exploitation that they were opposed to, more accurately. And the book also draws parallels between that time and our big tech-dominated economy today. If you'd like to join in the live listener chat, go to wfmu.org and click playlist and comments. Let's go ahead and listen to the second half of my interview with Brian Merchant here on Tectonic on WFMU. The irony here, of course, is that we're hearing that automation is going to save us. Automation is going to save the economy. Automation is going to free up time for all of us to live these wonderful lives. And both in... 1800s England and in the 2020s of our big tech economy, that's not true. What they call automation is, is just shifting the, the grueling exploitative work to some vulnerable population. As you write in the book, you wrote about one famous case of a child laborer who went on to gain some notoriety. His name was Robert Blinko. You write, Cartwright's loom didn't replace the human, of course, it just let boys like Blinko do the work. Yeah, exactly. And same as it ever was. It's been the case for, for 200 years, as you, as you point out. I mean, there are plenty of tasks that do eventually get automated. But um, as we'll discuss in, in, in a minute, I imagine, in the whole of that time, very few jobs or um, occupations or, um, you know, true important tasks have been fully have been fully automated, turned over to the machine. And likewise, everyone who has been so sure that, you know, we should embrace the most breakneck models of technological development, because eventually it will yield abundance that we'll all get to take part in. Well, we're still here, you know, 200 years after the beginnings of the mechanized uh, industrial revolution. We're still working at least 40 hours a week. We're still not seeing any of those meaningful changes integrated into our daily life. We still have to do old-fashioned wage labor to make a living, the vast majority of us. Um, and meanwhile, just like in the same day as the Luddites, uh, which they were quite aware of, there was this slim band that was profiting mightily all along. And, and that's where 
uh, the tensions become most pronounced. And I mean, that's what we have to ask, you know, we keep getting promised these machines of loving grace, of just resplendent, you know, technological horizons. Why for 200 years? Why are we still working around the clock then if you know, if it really can do all these amazing things, and maybe it can, but then we have to ask why nothing's changed in all that time. That's well said. I mean, all I would add is that we have to remember that the system is working for some of us. I mean, there are at least eight dudes now who are worth tens of billions of dollars and can buy as many mansions in the Hamptons and Marin County as they want. They can buy as many islands as they want. Have you ever considered their quality of life, Brian? I think that they could part with a few billions if it meant that their workers, you know, wouldn't have to uh, suffer heat exhaustion on the factory floor. I, yeah, I mean, that, that's ultimately really the point of the book is that technological innovation and all these great things that we have are in no way incompatible with, uh, with a more equitable distribution of the gains from them. Like we can embrace different models of, of, of technological development. And I don't really go deep into, you know, what all those ideas might be. And they could be completely radical, or they could be much less so just trying to, you know, impart more node points for folks to have some democratic input uh, in, in sort of the way that technology technology is built and, and um, used in, in their workplaces and lives. So yeah, it is It is a really big question. Um, and it's one of the reasons that I think the Luddites continue to get a bad rap is because it's hard, you know, to try to suss out the alternatives. Sometimes the easiest way is just to say, no, te technology is going to be built and we're just kind of at the whims of the people who deploy it. And that's progress. And, you know, if some people get torn up along the way, then that's just the way it is. There's almost a little bit of of, of laziness in just kind of propping up the current mode of technological development because it's just the easiest it's the easiest thing to do and it's the easiest myth for those who benefit from the status quo to perpetuate. Okay, Brian, we got to talk a little bit about the actual uprising, which forms yeah. a large part of this book. Of course, this book is about the Luddites, and so you you take us through a detailed step-by-step -step recounting of how the Luddites organized. It was a rather decentralized uprising. It was constantly making reference to a probably fictional character named Ned Ludd. I mean, it, there was no one named Ned Ludd in the movement, but there probably, you're right, there probably never was a Ned Ludd. And how they used, almost like an early version of memes, writing letters signed by Ned Ludd or, or putting up posters that referring to Ned Ludd and just generating a lot of awareness about the complaint and the response that these clothing workers were going to mount. When the movement started, here's something I, I never knew until I read this book. When the Luddites entered these factories late at night to do their machine breaking, they would target just the machines that they felt were unjust. They did not destroy everything and burn down the factory, at least not at first. When they started, they were making a very specific statement. We don't like these machines, and they would leave everything else untouched. As, as the movement started, it was quite thoughtful, wasn't it, about, about how to yeah. put its complaints into action? 
Yeah, extremely strategic. The Luddites knew who the worst offenders in town were. There were a, a range of folks on the entrepreneur side, we, we, we might call it, or, or the, the, the factory owner side, some who kind of felt compelled to try to keep up um, and build or purchase automating machinery of their own and who are actually kind of sympathetic to the cloth workers and are kind of saying, hey, if we don't do this, we're going to get left behind. But there were, uh, you know, a handful of folks who typically led the way and they were the most aggressive in building the largest factories, really trying to ride the workers the hardest, maximizing profits and all of that. And as a result, using new machinery most aggressively to put uh, and putting the workers out of a job. The Luddites knew who the who who the worst offenders were, who was the most obnoxious, as they would call it, or who had the, the, the obnoxious machines. Um, and they would do tallies and they would figure out, you know, how many people were put out of work by a given factory boss in town. And yeah, they would write the letter and they'd say, you know, Mr. Hollingsworth, we are aware that you have 600 of the obnoxious uh, frames uh, under your employ. Take them down or you'll get a visit from Ned Ludd's army or something like that. I'm This is off the top of my head, but that's the gist. If the uh, factory owner took the, took the frames down, he wouldn't get a visit. But if he didn't, then the Luddites would show up. And they would either hold the overseer who might have been sort of camped out to to watch the operation overnight up at gunpoint and go in and and smash the machines. Just just those ones, the ones that they had identified as being the drivers of this new inequality, the ones that were tearing up the social contract that had governed their communities for so long and who were doing that specifically so they could increase their own profits at a time, as we've said, when many people were starving, which looked again to most working people at the time like a stark moral violation. So by doing this, by using this tactic, they were able both to strike a direct hit against the, you know, the capital machinery of the of the factory owner who was uh, degrading their conditions and also send a powerful message that this is the new implement of inequality that is disrupting our community, that is bringing ruin to our community, that is also forecasting a future where more of this will happen. Imagine more factories lined with these things without skilled workers, with people who have to who are paid less and who have to toil uh, under the boss and all the things we've already discussed. So it was a very powerful tactic. And because it did have this meme-like structure where you know there was a this apocryphal figure general ludd or ned ludd or king ludd sometimes who would sign the letters well that meant if you were in a neighboring you know cloth producing district and you had your own set of grievances that were quite similar but you know maybe different in their own ways well nothing was stopping you from writing a letter signing it general ludd rounding up your companions and and going into action um and that's exactly what happened it spread from nottingham you know which was where where this started and i would be remiss not to note the similarities between robin hood and ned ludd and even there's like a phonetic similarity robin hood ned ludd they're pulling from the same tradition of of descent and you know using a new updated mythology but you have ned ludd your avatar of justice and sure enough from Nottingham to Manchester to York to the West Riding, you have all of these different 
Luddite uprisings happening, and they don't have to be, you know, in direct communication with each other. They don't have to be centrally organized. You know, it's it is kind. Of, I compare it, you know, maybe a, a little simplistically to Occupy Wall Street or Black Lives Matter today. But you, it's the idea. It's animated by the idea, a, a grievance and a tactic. So anybody can adopt it. And it proved really powerful for, for quite some time. You saw some factory bosses say, okay, white flag, I'm done. The prices go back up to what they were before the machines. Uh, we're not going to use them anymore. Um, so they won some wages. They won some protections. And it also animated a, a reform movement that sort of took root later. But in short, it wasn't enough. We, we hinted earlier about how the state was already supporting the industrialists by, you know, tacitly or explicitly allowing these pipelines of orphans to be built from orphanages to the factories and, and supporting it in other ways. Um, I mean, they liked having these big factories that were all of a sudden making a bunch of money on their lands. It was still, you know, the, the, the lords were running the show, so they got all those rents. And, you know, they liked that it was a big engine of productivity for, for England. But yeah, they sent in the troops after the Luddites' heroic and very, very popular rebellion. They were folk heroes. They took thousands and thousands of troops. The biggest domestic occupation of England um, was amassed to, to put them down. But, you know, eventually you can't overcome that. So they, they crushed the Luddites. And, you know, the victors tend to write the history books. So we are left with this uh, image that was very much as the state, as the crown of the time would have liked us to have, which is of Luddites as backwards looking, confused, malcontented, depredators, people who knew not what they did and just smashed things blindly for no reason, technophobes, progress phobes. Um, and that just couldn't be further from the truth. And all of that condescension towards the Luddites, you write, started at one particular moment. I mean, yes, the state had been making these moves to crush the uprising. I mean, far from listening to the complaints of starving people who wanted the state's regulations to be enforced, the state instead allowed the entrepreneurs to do whatever they wanted. And on the other side, they made frame-breaking, what the Luddites were doing, a capital offense. Yeah. Um, this was also at a time when it was forbidden by law to meet and begin to organize a union. So these workers had no help whatsoever from the state. Then there's this incident that I don't think we have time to get into, but there was a violent incident that brought three men to trial. These were Luddites that had done something outside of frame breaking that they were on trial for. It was the trial of George Meller, William Thorpe and Thomas Smith. I think this was 1813, and it really became a in the public eye almost like a trial against Luddism. The prosecutor for this trial began by painting these three men who were Luddites as technophobes, who everything that you just said, that they didn't know what they were doing, they didn't understand the the importance of the new technology. Here's what you write. The default mode of aggressive condescension toward those who would protest automation, even technology more broadly, was already visible in the very first statements uttered in the trial against the Luddites. It was the straw man that endures today. You're so right, Brian. I mean, it's still used, 
that term Luddite, it's used as a condescending um, epithet, totally against the reality of what the Luddites stood for. And it began at that trial. Yep. Yeah, it did. It began at that trial and then sort of the proclamations and the a PR campaign that I go into some of it, but you know, it was, yeah, they had to, they had to do that stuff. They had to use that language. They had to appeal to the public because the Luddites were so popular. They had to first use basically state power to, to, to stop them in their tracks. And then they had to use their perch to, to, to paint a, a narrative that would overwhelm that because, you know, as I quote Theodore Rozak, the scholar, in the book who who says, you know, if the Luddites didn't exist, then their critics would have to invent them. If you want a way to silence people who have problems with any part of your technological project, then the easiest way to do so is to just say, oh, well, you're a Luddite or you just you're you're with the losers, you're backwards looking. And that can be a powerful tactic. Nobody wants to be a loser. Nobody wants to oppose progress, quote unquote. So it really has behooved folks like, you know, the Prince Regent and all the industrialists at the top of the time to pass that down as sort of an operating strategy for the next 200 years or so. And that's really, you know, what what has happened. And every so often, there's a neo-Luddite movement that bubbles up at a particularly precarious time when uh, the power of big tech seems like it's gotten overbearing. Then, you know, in the early 90s, there was some quote-unquote neo-Luddism. And today, we see people really interested in this idea again. And, you know, I've been working on this book for five years, and I've seen it go from sort of a niche academic concern to something that I see people tweeting about, that people are proud to call themselves Luddites. People are sort of embracing the moniker. You know, I think there's a little bit of a punk spirit to it or something too, but there is also the fact that it's reassessing what the Luddites were really about. And that was identifying the harmful components of technology and just you know, empowering themselves to resist it. And that's what's powerful now. That's what I would argue was very instrumental in the writers winning that strike. Um, just that it felt empowering to say, we're not going to let you have use AI to encroach on our workplace or uh, or use it to drive down wages or this and that. We are going to take power over that, over our own labor process and, and just draw some red lines. So yeah, I think that it's very interesting that Luddism is is resurgent in this way. And it's been honestly really refreshing and, and really encouraging to see because it just means people are asking more questions about big tech, about how technology is used in their workplace. Is this a good thing for me? Do I want auto, this automation software to become a part of my daily life? Is it going to squeeze me? Is it going to be used to replace me? Opening that dialogue, you know, lets us reclaim control over a lot of these processes. And it lets us sort of build a technology that serves us and not just the interests of what are now a handful of sort of tech monopolies. And that's a powerful thing. Yeah, and that gets at my next question, which is, what should Luddites today do? The platforms that we want to resist are opaque, and they're so fully integrated. So what I'm getting at is, let's say that there is a terrible algorithm that is unjust that we want to remove. 
how would a group of Luddites go in and remove just one algorithm <laughs> out of a code base? I mean, that's impossible. Everything's so tightly integrated. It, it seems like the tactic today for Luddites has to be getting together in the real world and doing something that looks very much like the writer's strike. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the most effective way to do Luddism in the modern world um, is if you if, if you can organize and if you can, uh, you know, confront the social implications of a technology and and then design the way that, you know, you would ideally like for it to affect your your working life or your, or your daily life. Um, and that's effectively what they did. It's again, it's like the, it's a social control, just like the Luddites would not have had much of a problem if it, if somebody came in to the finishing shop and said, hey, here's this cool new automated machinery. Let's figure out a way together that we can use this so that our work isn't as backbreaking together. What if we got a few of these machines and, and we put them into action and we talked to you know, our suppliers and we talked to the folks who are doing the combing and we just kind of, you know, we've, we figured this could make our lives easier and maybe we could even make a little bit more money. That's not what, what, that's not what happened. It was a handful of people who were able to get some capital to build up a big operation and then to use it in opposition to the already established social norms in direct opposition. So that's essentially what the writer's strike was about. It was about saying, okay, the studios, if we, if you have the right to, if you own the the AI and you're going to use it to write scripts, we know what you're going to do. You're just going to cut us out of the equation. Everything's going to get crappier. The end product's going to get crappier. We're going to get paid less. The viewers are going to have less good stuff to watch. And, 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 you know, your numbers might even go down in the long run. But the the point is, is the writers just were resting control of that technology. And that's what happened. So now they still, you know, have the ability to use AI, should they choose to, should it be a boon to them. And, you know, there's questions about whether they should or not, because of it, is it trained on plagiarized work, but that's maybe a question for another time. But again, they are empowered to make those choices. Just imagine those cloth workers back in the day being empowered with those machines to strike out and sort of try to make everything better for the community at large. Then the machinery would not be hurtful to commonality. We can imagine that future, you know? We can imagine it again today. And as you say, that's what the Luddite project is about, you know? So the tactics today are, yeah, drawing these red lines in, in contracts. There's been some pretty powerful movements from the Authors Guild and from artists who have made open letters saying, cut this out, you know, ban this in your newsrooms, ban generative AI from your newsrooms. Um, if you want to use author's work, ask us, compensate us. And then there have been actual incidents of real Luddism, right? Like in San Francisco, where self-driving cars were sort of given freedom to, you know, put around and were okayed by the by the utility commission there in a kind of a sketchy vote that a lot of people didn't feel like reflected the democratic interests of the community. Well, some enterprising activists decided to go out with a cone and put it on the hood of the car and it stops it in its tracks. And that is another way to just reject peacefully, as peacefully as possible, really. Those things aren't even get, getting damaged. But that's doing Luddism. That is a direct action that is making clear that there are people in this community who feel strongly that this will be a disruptive or negative force, and we are acting to stop it. Made it got headlines around the world. You know, I think we're seeing this year that there's great power in this, in this, in this politics of, of technological refusal, when that technology is exploitative, when there's room to push back, can be a powerful thing. 
imagining better futures that starts with understanding the past. And this book does both of those for us. The book is Blood in the Machine, The Origins of the Rebellion Against Big Tech by my guest today, Brian Merchant. Brian, thanks so much for being on the show and hope you'll be back again sometime. Oh, absolutely loved it. Thanks, Mark. Um, and, 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 and love the station here and what it's all about. Cheers. It's Luddism, basically. tuning in you're listening to tectonic on wfmu my name is mark hurst i'll be your host for the remaining seven minutes of the show and then dave mandel's going to come on with another fabulous episode of it's complicated which is his prog rock show hope you'll stay tuned for that and then continue to stay tuned for bad animals with amanda and jim the poet then moving on to brother daniel blumen taking us from 9 p.m. Eastern to 12 midnight Eastern with his excellent eponymous show. We just heard my interview with Brian Merchant, author of Blood in the Machine, The Origins of the Rebellion Against Big Tech. We had a good discussion, are having a good discussion on the comment board at WFMU.org. If you're curious to read those comments and you're listening in the future to an archive or podcast version, you can go to tectonic.fm, T-E-C-H tonic.fm, and find the October 16, 2023 show and click the playlist link. Or, of course, just go to the archives at wfmu.org. They're always there. Thanks to everyone who commented, and thanks to Brian for being on the show. I should also note that Brian is the technology columnist at the LA Times, and on the playlist I have linked to his LA Times work, which is worth checking out, and also um, an op-ed that he wrote for the Washington Post on September 18 called, I've always loved tech, now I'm a Luddite. You should be one too. And um, it's, it's worth reading Brian Merchant's description or explanation of why he's a Luddite, even as he is a longtime fan of technology, and uh, I, could, I could say pretty much the same for myself. So read that article. It's on the playlist. And then finally, there's um, a graphic, not a graphic novel, but a graphic essay, I guess, uh, called I'm a Luddite and So Can You f- uh, from the late great The Nib, um, one of their final es- uh, issues, if not the final, from July 17 of this year. And you can check that out, again, at the playlist. And uh, in the couple minutes I have left, I want to say something about donating to or pledging to WFMU doing, during our monthly uh, fundraiser all October. Our Hellraiser fundraiser is picking up donations and pledges from you, the listeners, to get us through the lean months that will carry us through to the spring marathon. We need your support. This radio station uh, is supported by listeners. And we're trying to make this Hellraiser, we're trying to uh, achieve a $340,000 goal. And uh, that may seem like a lot, but it, you know, it, we have a lot of costs here. And you know inflation has caused those costs to go up and up and up. 
and uh, we've we've got power and water and as, especially f- for this show if you're listening on a podcast or an archive version the bandwidth the bandwidth that this station needs to provide you with free unadvertised access to these amazing archives i'm not speaking of myself here i i mean all of the shows within the the wfmu family that that go back in some cases, 20 years, and there's there's no ads. That's a lot of bandwidth that we are providing this to you, uh, and it's supported by you, the listeners. So what I want you to do is I want you to go to WFMU.org, and I want you to click that pledge widget. If it's during this show, it'll default to giving Tectonic the credit, but really, you give any show the credit. I'm, I'm pitching for you not to give to Tectonic, but to give to WFMU, because this is this station is so important. It's really so important. I'm happy to be uh, a donor, a Swag for Life donor myself. That's our $10 a month and up uh, program. And I'm happy to be a Swag for Life donor. And if you're a Swag for Life donor, you've already given for October, and I thank you for that. And if you want to up it, uh, give a little more, thank you again for that. And for those of you who who do go and make pledges, you can make a little, you can write in a little comment to the DJ. I don't read those out in the October fundraiser, but I do read all of them. So thanks to all of you who've written such nice notes uh, in your pledges. The Tectonic Pledge widget right now is sitting at 26%, and it's halfway through. It's over halfway through October. So I'm hoping some of you, if you haven't pledged, I hope you will show your support to this show by pledging to WFMU. Uh, And if you... if. um, what else can I say? I mentioned that if you missed the record fair this past weekend, there's a bunch of stuff happening around the uh, station. And I just want to call attention to what's happening in our performance space, our event space downstairs at 43 Montgomery here in Jersey City. This Friday, October 20, the station is hosting a karaoke night hosted by Clay Pigeon and Matt Warwick. And you've heard Matt Warwick on the show uh, a, a number of times in the past, a, a favorite repeat uh, guest slash co-host. <laughs> so, and Clay Pigeon, of course, is our amazing host of our morning show, Wake and Bake. So those two gentlemen are going to put on a great show for you this Friday, karaoke night. You get to sing along with Clay and Matt. Come on. That's great. It's 12 bucks, and the doors are at 7.30 p.m. Show starts at 8. So hope some of you will come out to that. There's a bunch more going on in Monty Hall. That's all the time I have to tell you. Uh, what can I say? You're listening to the greatest radio station in the world, WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope in New York City and Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. Until next time, friends, you know what to do. Avoid Apple, abandon Amazon, forget Facebook, and whatever you do, get off Google. And hey, you put in a $75 pledge or more at that pledge widget, make sure to click 1DJ Premium and you can get last chance to get the Tectonic Premium from this year, which, is, which contains four songs that Scott Williams and I did in the style of Simon and Garfunkel. We call ourselves Simark and Scott Funkel, and we're going to go out to Sounds of Surveillance. Have a great week, everybody. Oh, and by the way, I'm gone next week. <laughs> Thanks to the great Dan Boda for guest hosting next week. I'll see you in two weeks, everybody. Hello, Siri, my old friend. You've come to spy on me again. Because the websites that I've been browsing 
give you insight into my thinking. Paranoia that you planted in my brain still remains within the sound of surveillance. And that's how it starts. <laughs> Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another exciting installment of It's Complicated, an hour of Prague and Prague-adjacent music. I'm your host, Dave Mandel. I'm here every Monday at exactly this time, 7 p.m., following the great tectonic program. And we're going to start tonight's show Oops, with... Something I've got. I've gotten many requests, many many uh, veiled threats about uh, playing about not playing this group yet in the show. Did that sentence make any sense? I have yet to play on this program, Vandergraaff Generator, and several people have been grumbling about it, and rightly so. Rightly so. So I don't want a. Um, I don't want to have to quash a an uprising here. So I'm going to play Vandergraaff Generator, who I love. It just, it's just pure chance that I haven't played them on the show yet. Vandergraaff Generator will need no introduction to many of you, most of you. A group fronted by the great Peter Hamill, vocalist Peter Hamill. And I'm, I won't say anything much more about it right now, but here is Vandergraaff Generator.
Of your own death, not power is what. You 